0: We've been talking about warfare the last couple months, and we're realizing that this world is one screwed up mess. Amen? Amen. The world is a screwed up mess. If you feel like your life is at least partly screwed up, you fit right in, because the world is a screwed up mess. I mean, it's war. There's spiritual bullets and bombs and grenades and mines all over the place. People are getting hit. If you look around the world around you and and, and you, you, you just don't see... Sometimes you see a lot of evidence of God, and sometimes you see a lot of evidence of what's not God. That's because, in fact, the world's a screwed up mess, because we're in a state of war. And God's going to win the war, but he's chosen to win the war by means of the church, his bride. He wants a militant bride. And so he's empowered us to win this war. Here's the clothing you need to take on if you're going to go into warfare. We've been talking about this for a long time. You need to have a, uh, the full armor of God. You need, to, in verse 14, stand firm with the belt of truth. You need to have the breastplate of righteousness. You need to have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You need to take up your shield of faith. You need to, you need to put on your helmet of salvation, which is the, oh, the helmet of salvation. And then you, take, you need to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We talked about that last week. Be people of the word. Saturate your minds, your day, your breath, every life, every, everything about your life with the word of God. Because this is what transforms us. Now, now that you're fully dressed, he's not going to give us another piece of clothing. Prayer isn't one more thing on top of others. Prayer is what under good, undergirds everything. This is what makes the whole thing work. So he says this in verse 18 of chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians And pray in the Spirit in, on all occasions. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the saints. Note that. On all occasions, always be praying. Pray also for me. Don't forget me. That whenever, I love this, this is a preacher's mandate, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Apparently Paul wasn't working from a prescripted text there. For which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Having said that, will you please pray that I would do what Paul just asked his people to pray for, that I could speak the word of God boldly. Father, we join together now, and with the provision that you have laid aside for prayer, we ask that you would show up here as you were in the worship, and give these words energy because they have no energy and no life apart from you. And God, give me the words to speak and then ride those words into our hearts to create in us the kingdom fruit that you want to see created. And Lord, most importantly, I pray right now that we would become people who pray with a sense of vibrancy and a sense of joy and a sense of responsibility and a sense of urgency, Lord. Make us people who know how to talk to You and love to talk to You and believe that talking to You makes a great difference. Use this time to do that, Lord. We pray in Your name. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. I don't think that there's anything that I tend to do worse in my Christian walk than pray. I've come a long way in that, but God, as I've told you many times, has to wake me up at two in the morning to do it. Um, That's what happens if you don't listen to the first nudge. He'll find a way to nudge you. But in general, I believe you'd probably all agree that there's very little that Christians do more inadequately than we do prayer. Martin Luther, about 400 years ago, wrote to a bishop as he was founding the Lutheran Church, and he complained to this bishop that he was so preoccupied with trivial affairs like running a church that he hardly had time two hours a day to pray. Poor Luther, two hours a day. Poor guy's on the verge of backsliding. Which gives you an indication of how far we have come with our busy, busy, busy lives and so much to do. But I believe that the reason why we don't find time to pray like we should is because we don't, in our heart of hearts, really, really believe that it does that much good. We find a lot of time to do what we really feel is necessary. But what we don't really believe is necessary tends to get pushed down the totem pole. And that's just because of of a belief structure that we have. I believe that if I could, on a consistent basis, and you could, on a consistent basis, see the reality of what goes on in the spiritual realm when people pray, I believe we would find a lot more time to pray than we, in fact, do. And not just particular occasions to pray, but to make prayer a part of our everyday walk. our our talk with God, as we're driving, as we're doing things, to be in conversation with God. That's why the Bible says numerous times to always pray, pray on all occasions. Make it a, pray unceasingly, Paul says at one point. But we don't see the urgency of it. What I want to do this morning, very simply, is to try to get us to see the urgency of things. To try to set a broad background that would help us understand why prayer is so important. The first thing to realize, though, is that the Bible assumes that it is important. The Bible assumes that a lot hangs on prayer. The Bible assumes that God has a lot of things that he would like to do. But he doesn't do them unless or until people, his people, pray. He inspires them to pray that his will may be done, but he does not do his will, very frequently at least, until they pray. Jesus taught us, To knock, and the door would be opened to us. And to ask, and it shall be given to us. And to seek, and it shall find. And we shall find. What we need to see there is that Jesus in that context, and it's really clear in the Greek, there's a sense of urgency. It's It's an emphatic clause where he's really saying this. Knock, I want to open it for you. Seek, I want you to find. Ask, I want to give to you. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke, I think it's chapter 10, he said, Pray, ask the father, and he'll give you what you ask. A father, if a child asks a father for some bread, he doesn't give him a scorpion. The father wants to give good gifts to to the child. And so also your heavenly father desires to give gifts to you, desires to use you in carrying out his will and building his kingdom here. But his desire isn't enough. He needs you, or wants you at least. He's designed it such that you need to pray if things are going to get done. No one, but no one, wants every soul on this planet saved as much as God. God is not willing that any should perish, the Bible says, but that all should come to repentance. He takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't think hell is a funny subject at all. There's no pleasure in that. He creates people with the hope, with the goal of having them saved. But, Jesus told his disciples this, the harvest is ripe, but pray that the Father would send forth laborers into the field to reap the harvest. The sense here is this. God already wants those people saved. And yet, it's the job, the responsibility, and the opportunity of the saints of God to activate that desire and to see it implemented in the world by praying. The Lord has a lot of things he would like to see happen. But he ordains it for reasons that we need to look into. He ordains it such that it will not happen unless the people of God pray. There's a sense of urgency, even of desperation, in the Bible about this. Consider one more passage. Ezekiel chapter 22. There are things that God will not do that he would like to do unless the people of God pray. There's even things that God does not want to do, but he will do, unless the people of God pray. Now there's a strange thought for you. Verse 29 of Ezekiel chapter 22. Listen to this. God says to his, his prophet, the people of the land, Israel, they practice extortion and they commit robbery. They oppress the poor and the needy and, the, and they mistreat the alien, denying them justice. If you ever wonder about whether God wants a just society or not, there's your verse. There's one of about a thousand. God does not like it when the poor get oppressed and taken advantage of. That's a separate sermon. But look what the Lord says there. He says, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. Now if you take the Word of God seriously, and we do, the verse is saying that because of Israel's sin, They'd gotten themselves in a situation where God would be lacking integrity if he did not do something about it. And yet the verse is saying that was, were there a person who, would, who he could find to inspire, a person who would listen to him inspire, who would, stand, who would build up a wall to keep this judgment from happening, who would stand in the gap, stand in the trenches, to come between Israel and the judgment of God, was there one person who could intercede like Moses did for Israel back in Exodus when God wanted there to judge Israel but Moses interceded and he prayed he he did a prayer of intercession there and prevented God from doing what in that case God was inclined to do namely bringing judgment here God would have done the opposite God would have stopped bringing the judgment if only there was a person who would have prayed because God didn't want to bring the judgment but he couldn't find anybody and the implication of the text is this A nation of people hung in the balance of prayer. You want to know if prayer does anything. You want to know if prayer changes the world. You want to know if prayer is efficacious. You want to know if prayer is an awesome responsibility. The answer's got to be yes. If we take the Word of God seriously. Things hang upon whether or not people pray. Here's a major question for you, though. And this is, I think, very important because this is, I believe, What is at the root of our lack of passionate motivation to be prayer warriors? You ask the question, why would the Almighty God need someone to pray? Especially about something He wants to do already. Isn't that a little bizarre? Lord, if you want the people saved, then we give you permission to do it. Why do you have to get us to ask you? Kind of like you get a picture of some I don't know, a picture of somebody who wants to wash his car, but he won't until the wife says, will you wash the car or something? I don't know. Like, I'm waiting for you to ask me. I don't know. It's, it's kind of bizarre. God, why, why do you need? Why do you want? Why won't you do certain things unless your people pray? Especially, this, is all, this used to bug me a lot, but God's all-powerful and all-good, right? I passed that to He's all-good. So, he always does the best thing. He's all powerful, so he can do anything he wants, and he always does the best thing. So, when I say, God, please save my father, well, if God's all good and he always does the best thing, he's already trying to save my father. If I say, God, don't save my father, God's all good, so he's not going to do that anyways, because he'll never do a bad thing, even if I ask him. So, if it's good to do, he's already going to do it, and if I'm asking a bad thing to do, he's not going to do it anyway, so why pray? Does that make sense? don't you wonder? Like, you can't bend God's arm to do something less than all good because he's all good. So prayer feels artificial. Do you feel that sometimes? You're sitting there praying by your bedside and you wonder, why am I doing this? Maybe I think too much, but it's just like, it's like, what is this? One of the reasons why I detest committees, I, 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 everyone at Bethel knows this. I, I, Try everything within my power to get out of committee work. I don't like committee work. And one of the reasons is because while there are indeed some very important committees, mind you, I never can find them. And I always, co- <laughs> I always end up on committees where I get the sense, and maybe this is my cynicism, and some of you have been on committees like this where it doesn't seem like no matter what you do, the boss is going to do what they want to do anyways. And they just put you, I got a couple of amens on that one. Oh, Yeah. A pro forma committee, a rubber stamp committee, and they just want you, they want you to feel like you're a part of things. So act like you are really important and you have a part of this decision-making process. But in the end, no matter what you decide, the decision was already made months ago, and, and hopefully you'll agree with it. But if not, too bad. And sometimes prayer feels like this. I think a lot of believers, they don't think this out that clearly, but there's a suspicion there that God, being almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent, all-good, the creator of all things... He's going to do whatever he doggone well pleases anyways. And so, yeah, he wants me to feel like a participant, but really, there's no urgency here. Nothing can hang in the balance on this thing. Now, if I'm walking down the street and I see a kid in in the middle of the street and there's a car coming, I know that a lot hangs in the balance with whether or not I make a decision to risk my life and jump and save that kid. That I can see. A lot hangs in the balance there. We can accept that God doesn't do everything automatically, and that not everything that happens is part of God's will on a physical level, but for some reason on a spiritual level, we tend to get this idea that there's like this blueprint out there, this script that everything follows, and no matter what we do, it's not going to make much of a difference. Now here's what I want to help us to see. I want to back off here and do some teaching because I think that this idea is entirely wrong-headed and gets us into a lot of trouble and undermines what is a very important responsibility and wonderful opportunity that we have, namely the opportunity to pray. To understand the urgency of prayer, we need to step back and ask the question, why are we here in the first place? This gets to the very heart of things. Follow this. We were put here, Genesis 1 says, most of all, to glorify God and to take care of the earth. We glorify God by taking care of the earth. God makes us, as it were, he's the owner of the earth, and he puts us as managers. We're supposed to manage this thing. We're supposed to be good stewards, and we're supposed to manage each other. We are supposed to replicate with our love for one another and with our responsibility over the earth to be good stewards of the earth. We are to, in our own little way, mirror God's glory and when we do that there is incredible bliss and joy and peace and harmony in our life. But we are put here to be responsible agents over the world. We are put here to do that voluntarily. That's what that whole tree in the garden stuff is all about. It has to be chosen. Now we know that the enemy this is what he did. This is why now the world does not look like it's all created for God's glory. It looks like a battlefield. Why? Because it is a battlefield how to get this way? Here's how. There's this war that was going on for a long, long time. This is what we've been talking about the last couple of months. Satan, as a way of getting back at God, as a way of striking him, it's kind of like kidnapping your kids. And Satan loves to go after your kids, by the way. Not to kidnap necessarily, but if he could do that, he would. But he just loves to torment them. But he goes after God's kids. And so he kidnaps the earth. That's what's going on here. We are, we're living in an estranged world. We sold our birthright, as it were, to the enemy. We surrendered our lordship over the earth. God wanted to reign as king over the world through viceroys, through managers, namely us. But Satan stole that. He became, the Bible says, the lord of this world, the god of this age, and now he's the principality and power of the air. We, that was supposed to be our job. We were supposed to run things, and now we, at the Garden of Eden, and then sense them with our own lives, have surrendered that over to the enemy. And what God has been about ever since then is taking back from the enemy what belongs to him and taking back from the enemy the people that belong to him and reestablishing us as the rightful managers of the planet and the rightful people who can demonstrate God's love and God's glory by the way we relate to one another. That is called in the Bible the church, the body of Christ. Jesus Christ wants to reign on the earth and he wants to reign with a bride. And that is the people of God. Okay, this is really big picture stuff. We're stepping back. This is good theology stuff. Hang with me here. You're wondering, how does this fit into prayer? You'll see it in a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says that we, the believers, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, are going to reign over other people and angels in the kingdom of God. We are going to judge angels, it says in 1 in, in, in Corinthians. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, That if we suffer with Christ, we're going to reign with Christ. He wants many kings, as it were. He wants his bride to reign alongside of him. Revelations chapter 2, verse 26 says that we will rule the nations. Clearly, here we. I don't know where the cloud harp deal came from, but that's not how the Bible sees heaven. The Bible sees heaven as a fulfillment of what God's doing here. He likes his plan, it just got a little screwed up, so now he's going to restore this, but the Bible always pictures the kingdom of God as something that's very much like this kind of a thing here, but it's a perfected version of it. It's what God always intended it to be. We will rule the nations, it says in the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 3 verse 21 says that we will sit with Christ on the throne of his Father. The church, the bride. He wants to rule, but he made us the viceroys, the managers of this planet. He wants us to sit with him on the Father's throne. One question is, how big is that throne? It's going to be very, very, very big. Or, or maybe we'll be made microscopic. I don't know how that's going to work, but somehow going to happen. Don't worry about it. Finally, Revelations chapter 5, and I could point out many, many other verses about this, but uh, Revelations chapter 5, verse 10, says that we shall reign with Christ over the earth. Okay, let's pull it all together here now. The plan here is this. God wants a people who enjoy him, who share in his joy, the, the, the joy of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, who replicate that love within themselves, who are, as God is, uh, they have a dominion, they have a responsibility, they take care of the Garden of Eden, we, are, we are, have responsibility for the world, It now is under siege by the enemy, so God wants us to kick the enemies behind because it belongs to us. He he doesn't want to do it by himself. He wants to use us, his bride, his body, to be warriors, to vanquish the enemy because we are the ones who surrender it. We are the ones who have to legally get it back, so he wants to do it through us. But the bottom line here is this. He does not want a bunch of robots. He does not want a bunch of puppets. He doesn't want a bunch of automatons. He doesn't want a bunch of wimps. He wants a people who are, a people who are persons in the full sense of the word, who, can, who have a free will, who surrender to him voluntarily, who choose to love him, not out of coercion, but out of their decision, who yield their lives freely to him. And that's why God gives us moral responsibility. God gives us the power to affect the world, the power to, ha- to affect people for better or for worse. It'd be easy if we were all puppets, but that'd be a boring world and it wouldn't accomplish what God has in mind here. So we have at a physical level the power to bless our kids and we have the power to abuse our kids. The authority to do one is the authority to do the other. The power to obey God is also the power to disobey God. We have the authority to bless. We have the authority to curse. We have the power to give life and we have the power to take life. We have the power to save a little kid in the middle of the street and we also have the ability to be a coward and run from that situation. We can act responsibly or we can act irresponsibly. We can act intelligently or we can act stupidly. We can act morally or we can act immorally. The decision's in our court because God wants a bride who's a thinking bride, a responsible bride, a personal bride, not a robot. He could have had a robot but he choose not to have that. He wants a people. And what we need to see here is this. What is true on a physical level is as true and I would say far more true on a spiritual level. If we understand that the future of my kids hangs a lot in terms of what I do with them, I can affect them in a very, very bad way if I choose to. If their lives hang in the balance of me because I'm a more responsible person, because God wants me to be a personal agent on the earth, the same is true with regard to the spiritual realm. I want to see this here. In fact, what the Bible says, and this is where this urgency comes from, is that prayer does much more than we could ever do on a physical realm. Prayer is the means by which things in the spiritual realm get done. And God intentionally, because he doesn't want us to be a bunch of robots and puppets, God intentionally makes a covenant with us. A personal covenant. And a personal covenant involves conditions. The condition is this. There's a lot of things that I want to do. I could do it willy-nilly all by myself and flex my muscle. I could do that. But I put you in charge of this, and I want you to be personal agents, and I want you to reflect my image. And I'm not a puppet, so I'm not going to make you a puppet, and therefore it's a decision that you have to make. I put this authority in your hands. There's a lot of things that I want to do, but I'm not going to do them unless you are a partner with me in it. I want to create, but I want you to be co creators. I want to own the world, but I want you to manage the thing. Are you following me here? Prayer is the authority that God has given to us in the spiritual realm to agree with him on his lordship on the earth and to see that lordship implemented. And God's serious when he says, I'm going to a covenant here, and if you pray, it will happen. If you don't, it won't happen. Which is why there's a sense of urgency here. This is, this is a great book here. It's called Destined for the Throne by Paul Bilheimer. Destined for the Throne by Paul Pilheim, by Paul Billheimer. Paul Bilheimer. Billy Graham, who some of you have heard of, says this about this book. Every Christian should not only read this book, but study it prayerfully and apply its principles in his life. Billy Graham said it was one of the most life-transforming books he's ever read. The whole thing is about prayer and the role of prayer in the church. Listen to what he says. He's drawing an analogy here about prayer. And I'm painting this big background here. Teaching is important, you guys, because if you're working from a wrong set of presuppositions, you're going to have wrong action. We so often try to just cut to the chase with action, but we don't look at the theory behind it. Until you understand how this thing's structured, you'll never see prayer as being as urgent as it really is. Here's what he says about prayer. He draws an analogy. Checks used by some business firms require the signatures of two individuals to make them valid. Usually you have the owner of the company and the manager of the company. Both have to sign it for it to be valid. That's exactly what's going on here with the earth. One signature is not enough. Both parties must agree. Both parties must sign. This illustrates God's method of operating through the prayers and faith of his people. His promises. I'm going to read a couple of them later on. There's a lot of them, folks. His promises. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then will they hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Bam! Promise. Promise. And God never lies. It's impossible for him to lie. It's impossible for him to say he's going to do something and not do it. His promises are his checks signed in his own blood. His part was fully completed at Calvary. Listen to this. But no promise is made good until a redeemed person enters the throne room of the universe and by prayer and faith writes his name besides God's. I agree. Then and not until then are the checks, resources released. Praise God. Think about it. Oh, here's another analogy. It is like a safety deposit box in a bank vault. The keeper has a key, and you have the key. Neither key alone will open the box. But when you give the keeper your key, she inserts both keys, and the door flies open, making available all the treasures stored in the box. Listen to this now, you guys. Heaven holds the key by which decisions governing earthly affairs are made. But we, the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, we hold the key by which those decisions are implemented. This being so, then prayer takes on a very different dimension from the conventional notion or understanding. Prayer is not trying to overcome God's reluctance. God, please, 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 please. We're not trying to get God to do something he either will not or cannot do because of his character. It is not persuading him to do something he's unwilling to do. Prayer is quote-unquote, binding upon earth that which has already been bound in heaven, loosening upon earth what has already been loosed in heaven, Matthew 16, 19, which is why, by the way, Jesus said, I give you the keys to the kingdom of God. We got the keys. He's got the other set. we got to work together on this thing. It is implementing His decisions, it is enforcing his will upon the earth. Praise God. He has a bride, and he wants to work with his bride on reigning over the earth. And it's going to happen, it's going to happen one way or the other, it's going to happen. But for that reason, God gives us this incredible, this incredible authority, this incredible power, this incredible responsibility, and it's an incredible opportunity And the opportunity is prayer. A lot of things that God wants to do, but he will not do unless his people pray. To motivate us, God puts a tremendous amount of promises endorsed in prayer. There's nothing that God endorses more than prayer. Listen to some of the promises that God attaches to prayer. We've already seen that things can hang upon prayer. Lives can hang upon prayer. Cities can hang upon prayer. Nations can hang upon prayer. Jesus says this, the Lord says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, 1 Chronicles 7, then will they hear from heaven and I will heal their land. That's a promise there. There's a law in effect here. God says, if you do this, I will do this. That's the covenant we're a part of. But the implication is, is if we don't do that, he will not do that. If people pray, they will hear from heaven. 1 Kings chapter 8, you shall call upon me and I will answer your prayer. Isaiah 65, call unto me. He says to his people, and I will answer and show you things you have not yet imagined. Jeremiah 33.3. 3. Think about that verse for a second. Call unto me. Not only does God want to answer the prayer, he wants to out-answer the prayer. There's a concept there. God wants to out-answer the prayer. He wants to say yes to that and then go beyond it. So he says this. I'll tell you what. I'll spot you one and I'll raise you one. I'll, you want to pray for that? Great. You want 100 souls saved? I want 10,000. Let's go for it. But what, what has to be there is the congruity between God's people and God. The agreement, the, 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 the locks in there unleashing the vault of heaven that the blessings of God will flow out. We have from the start, and I, I believe this, from the start believed that Woodland Hills is an experiment in prayer. That is to say, we're simply trying to find out whether God is true. Guess what? He is. But what happens if the people of God pray? What happens if we put more steak... More trust in God's word about prayer than we put in programs, than we put in advertising, than we put in marketing programs. What happens if we trust God more than we trust our own ideas? What happens if we trust God and God's word, God's law, God's covenant, God's promise, more than we could trust our own abilities to speak, our own abilities to sing, our own abilities to acquire a building? What happens if there are a group of people, more and more people, who are more and more committed to doing the intercessory work that saves nations, and to smoke God out. You know, the Bible talks about uh, the, the prayer as smoke in Revelations chapter 5 and Revelations chapter 8. Just smoke God out. He says this pray like this. Pray like a widow who wants to get her case heard by an unjust judge. And she knocks and knocks and knocks and will not leave that judge alone until the case is finally heard. Pray like that. Well, what would happen if we got a bunch of people and started a prayer movement and just begin to intercede and flood God out and do spiritual warfare in those heavenly realms through prayer and begin to have faith and exercise faith that what God says is true? What would happen if that ha- if people did that? And the answer is Jeremiah 33.3. 3. God will answer and show us things we haven't even dreamed of. Praise God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Amen. That's the power of prayer. Praise God, that is the power of prayer. And there is nothing, there is nothing that builds the kingdom of God apart from prayer. I believe that every soul that's ever gotten saved here and any sermon that's had any degree of anointing and any worship service that has, where God showed up even a little bit, and every marriage that's been healed and every person that's been physically healed and every person that's been spiritually delivered and every demon we've ever cast out is the result of people praying. Not necessarily the people who are involved right then, but people behind the scenes praying, doing intercessory work, it counts. It's urgent. I've gotten to the point where I can sense when there wasn't enough prayer covering when I preached a sermon. I didn't, even, I didn't notice that before. But I'm getting to that point where I sense it. Everything but everything hangs upon this. Let me leave you with this challenge. Next week, there's a lot of questions that this raises. Like, for example, how come I prayed that my mother be healed and she wasn't healed? I mean, a lot of questions like that. Uh, the Lord says, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe you receive, and you shall receive. There it is, Mark, chapter 11, verses 24 through 25. If you abide in me and I and you, ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. There it is, John, chapter 15. Well, why doesn't that always happen? Okay, we've got to talk about that. Right now, I want us to feel the force of this. This is the urgent stuff. And I want to leave you with this challenge, and we've challenged the people of Woodland Hills a number of times in the, on this score. But it's this. If you feel spiritually aligned with Woodland Hills Church, you're a member of Woodland Hills Church, as much a member as you're ever going to be. And you are a minister, and you're called to do ministry. Make this part of your ministry. I challenge you to pray five minutes a day for the ministry here. If this is, if this is where you want to be doing your, 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 your Christian walk and Christian growth, I challenge you to pray five minutes a day. Pray ten if you want. Pray an hour if you want. There are people who pray an hour a day for this ministry. But if we got 2,000 people praying five minutes a day, whoa! He would show us things we have not yet conceived. When there's a deficiency in the work of God, it's because there's not enough prayer. When there's miracles happening all over the place, it's because there is enough prayer. If, If you're visiting here today, I want to give you this challenge. We care about you. We care about the church that you're part of. I challenge you to take that challenge back to your church and challenge other people with it and pray for that ministry. Charles Finney, I'll close with this. This is my closing. Char- Charles Finney. I've shared this a lot. He's one of my favorite people, but he said this. He said... they. In his ministry, people were saved by the hundreds, by the thousands, and people couldn't understand why, because he wasn't that eloquent of a speaker and stuff, but he just saved many, many, many people, and they asked him, what is it? Because you play an organ when you give an altar call, or what is it? And he says, the answer is this. I know, like Newton knows the laws of nature, I know the laws of the kingdom. And the laws of the kingdom say that if you pray, God has to show up. God has. God can't lie. He's bound himself to this one. So, when I go into a city, I get... All the churches, I make a covenant with them, all the churches of that city have got to pray every day for six months, an hour a day. All the people get together in the church and they pray an hour a day. And then he says, when I walk in there, I say, Jesus loves you, and bam, the people are running up at the altar. Why? Because God wants those people saved. He just needs the prayer to do it. We, We smoke God out, he shows up, and things get done. We need to be a praying people. All that we've talked about with warfare is useless unless there's prayer behind it. This morning, if you have a need and you want to pray about it, feel free to come up here. There would be people who would love to pray with you here. Uh, come forward and just get involved in a little bit of prayer there. There's nothing more important that we ever do. Whatever else you've got going on today, go into the cabin or whatnot. Of course, if that was true, you'd probably be there now. But, but whatever else you've got going on, this is more important if, if God's calling you forward to pray. So 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 do that. Father, we now pray and thank you and praise you for what you've done for us. We repent of the fact, the truth, Lord, that we have not sought you as urgently and as passionately as we should. Thank you, Lord God, for doing the radical measures you've done in some of our lives to get us to have some quality time with you. But I pray, Lord God, that as we go out of here, we would be a people who understand the incredible responsibility you've laid on us and the incredible joy and opportunity that comes with it. And Lord, I pray, God, that you'd keep this from ever being an indicting thing, but rather make it a positive thing that we want to do. Because we want to be co reigners with you, Lord. You're training us for the kingdom. And Lord, I pray, God, that you'd make us people who pray with urgency and passion and vibrancy and celebration and change the world by doing it, Lord. Far more than anything else we'll ever do, Lord God, prayer is what changes things. Building us a faith that that is real. In your name we pray. Amen.